All right now. Genesis chapter 13. Last week we saw Abram leave the promised land, felt like he just got there. (laughs) And he left and he went to Egypt because of a famine in the land. And there was that story where he lied about his wife, said she was his sister. Unfortunately, that was not the last time he will do that, but he did manage to escape with his skin and with all the blessings and the wealth that they had gathered there. And in this chapter, Abram is returning to the promised land. He's going to renew his commitment to the Lord, but you remember this story. This is where he and his nephew Lot are going to have to separate over grazing rights in the promised land. In 1889, the U.S. government opened up unassigned lands in the Oklahoma Territory for settlement. It was one of the last places in the West where settlement had not been permitted. And under the Homestead Act, any settler that went out there and staked out their claim, they could claim up to 160 acres. If they stayed for three years and they improved it, they could keep it. So on April 22, 1889, thousands and thousands of people lined up on the Oklahoma border on foot, on horseback, in covered wagons. Some of them were on the trains, but they were not allowed to come in until noon. And at noon, a bugle went off and people rushed into the state of Oklahoma, or as it was called then, the territory of Oklahoma. By the end of the day, two million acres of land had been claimed. And the city of Oklahoma City, which had not existed at 1155 that day, sprang up to more than 10,000 inhabitants. But when many of these people, they reached their claim, you might know the story, there were other people already there, which was not allowed. And they were asking them, how did you get there so soon? Which is where the Oklahoma Sooners get their name from. The thing is, you're out in the middle of nowhere, you're out in the middle of the Old West, you, you can't call the police to come and get this guy off your land. If he's not moving, he's not moving. There was one group of settlers that were going to found a town called Guthrie. They get there, and the U.S. Marshals had already laid out the town and the property for themselves, which was illegal at the time, but there was nothing they could do about it, because who are they going to call, the Marshals? And the folks had to settle for less. They had to settle for a different piece of land. And the only reason, as I read somewhere, that there was no widespread violence, according to the people, when they were asked, like, why didn't you just fight him? And they said, well... Oklahoma Territory was under prohibition at the time, and there was no liquor available, so that's probably the only thing that saved it from turning violent. How does that relate to today? Well, we love to claim the promises of God, don't we? We talk about that. We, we have a claim on the promises of God. It's nothing that we came up with. The higher authority of heaven has promised it to us. So we want to get there and claim it. I want to claim that joy. I want to claim that peace or whatever it is. But if you have allowed someone or something else to get there first, there's going to be a conflict. In order to fully receive the blessings and the promises of God, there are things from which we need to separate. And that process can be difficult and it can be fearful when there's something that has jumped the claim of God in your heart and gotten there first. Following Jesus is a a continual process of letting go of lesser things, letting go of things that get in the way of His promises. And the Holy Spirit is always working to separate us 
from anything that would prevent us from experiencing his fullness. The Lord desires to bless us. He's promised us in John 10, 10, abundant life. So if we're not living abundant life, well, that's not God's fault. And the Holy Spirit is constantly working to refine us and bring us to that place where he can give us those things. Which is why it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is our ultimate example. He emptied himself of his divine privileges. He remained God, but he chose to live as a man. He became a man. He even humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for the joy of your love and your fellowship someday. And this is what the word has called us to do. Look to Jesus' example that didn't let anything get in the way of what he was doing, what the Father desired. In the same way, you can't let anything else jump the claim of God on your heart. You ever found yourself coming over and over and over again to the same sticking point in your Christian life? You start to renew your commitment to the Lord and it brings you back to the same thing every time. Like, come on, Lord, don't you have anything else to say to me? The thing is, the Lord wants to separate you from those things, not because he hates you, but because he loves you so much and he knows he's got something better for you. A lot of times we're like little kids playing with the box instead of the toy that was inside, right? And you know what else? We're going to talk about this too. We are very quick to blame God for our failure to enter into what he's already promised. Now, sometimes this is an angry blame where we say it's God's fault. He's not doing what he promised. Well, we know that's not true. But then there can be the other side that looks at your life and say, well, that must be the way God wants it. And you rack up all of your failures to the sovereignty of God somehow. Well, that's not good either. The Lord is going to show us today through the example of Abram and his nephew Lot, who was taken up space in his promised land, that you got to get rid of those things. There are things in your life that are taken up space that God has promised to put something better there. Like the Oklahoma Sooners, not the football team. And the Lord wants this to be the day you finally separate from those things. So let's read the first four verses of Genesis 13, where it says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. That's going to become important in a minute. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And we'll pause right there. So Abram, making his way back from Egypt, you remember he had come to the promised land from Haran, went to Egypt during the famine, and finally, Pharaoh said, get out of here and take your wife with you. And he heads back, and he comes back up in here between Bethel and Ai. That's how you'd pronounce that. And we see in verse 2 that while he was in Egypt, Abram's wealth had dramatically increased. Remember, Pharaoh had 
he thought, made Abram his brother-in-law. And he was giving him all kinds of wealth and gifts and probably a bride price for Abram's wife. We talked about that last time. We do not know what happened with the famine. We don't know whether the famine had died off in Egypt, whether Abram made it back and it was still under a famine, or whether the famine was continuing and Abram just went back in faith. But in any case, this episode in in Egypt is over. And it says in verse 4 that Abram returned and built an altar at the last place he had met God. That's significant, I think. Read verse 4 with me again. It says, He returned to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. We often find ourselves, unfortunately, in compromise or sin, don't we? You strayed from the path. You went to Egypt. Maybe you shouldn't have gone to Egypt. Maybe it was no big deal. But the fact is, you went to Egypt and you did some things you shouldn't have done. And Abram gives us our solution here. When you find that you have strayed from what God has called you to do, you need to return to the last place where you were faithfully following the Lord and pick it up where you left off. You might know this story. This is from 2 Kings chapter 6. It's a story about Elisha. And Elisha had a school of prophets. He had a seminary, you could say. And they were building a new house for themselves. But it says, When they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. So he swings the axe, he pulls it out, and the iron axe head just goes flying and lands in the river. And he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Now we think of an axe today, and we're like, well, they're, they're not that expensive. Just go get a new one. Iron was a very precious commodity back then. Borrowing somebody's axe was much more like borrowing somebody's car. You know, it was expensive, and if you lost it in a river, you're in trouble. So the man of God said, where did it fall? It's a significant question. Where did it fall? Where did you lose it? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick, and he threw it in there, and he made the iron float, and he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Where did you lose it? That's the question we ask ourselves. When you find yourself off track, you're not walking where God has commanded you to walk, you're not seeing the promises of God fulfilled in your life, you've got to stop and think to yourself, okay, where did you lose it? Where did it go wrong? I think all of us can look back at a time where we were more faithful to the Lord. Maybe when you were much younger. When you were more joyful. You were more loving to the people around you. You were more obedient to the commandments of God. And if that version of yourself were to see today's version of yourself, that version of yourself would get rather upset with you. How could you let all this stuff in? We said we were never going back to that. And you're back? That's where we need to go after a failure, to go back to where we lost it. Abram goes back to the altar he built last time things were good. The Lord has told us how to live, hasn't he? you got a whole book in your lap telling you about how to live, how to live a godly life. He's also made us great promises. And we can key on one or the other, but tonight we're going to look at the promises. If you're experiencing spiritual trouble, I'm not talking about the normal afflictions and trials of life that we go through. If you're experiencing a spiritual crisis, you've got to look at yourself and see what happened. Where'd you lose it? So I was full of joy and peace, and then I don't know what happened, but here I am two years later, and I'm just a nervous wreck. 
I used to be so zealous in sharing the faith, and now I'm intimidated even to talk to anybody and say, I go to church. And this is what we've got to ask ourselves. What changed? Did you stop praying? Maybe we just stopped calling on the name of the Lord altogether. It's never a good sign when somebody's prayer life drops off, when somebody no longer has that hunger and that desire to pray. If you stopped attending church, I mean, you guys are here, but maybe you understand how this feels. When someone stops coming to the house of God, is church magic? Do we need you here? No, but you're around godly people. You're with your team. You're with your family who loves you and is there to encourage you and exhort you and call you out. Have you stopped reading your Bible? Well, I've read it before. Okay, yeah. (laughs) You might be one of those people that reads a book and never reads it again. I'm not. I tend to read books I like lots of times. But the Bible's not just a book, is it? The Bible is living and active. Well, I've already read it. I know what it says. But it's living, though. It can look at where you are right now and give you exactly what you need for that moment. You stop doing that. You're, You're trying to go off the last tank of gas that you filled up a couple years ago. You're going to be in trouble. And you're going to wind up in Egypt lying to Pharaoh. Now, our problem is we think we can't go back. There's no way. I can't get back. That's the, that's the enemy speaking to you. Does God ever say, it's too late, you're never, we're never going to get it right? The Lord is the one that shows mercy and grace. God gave Nineveh a second chance. The people that skinned folks alive and hung them from the walls. He gave them a second chance. So I don't think any of you have done that. So you're probably in line for a second chance too. I can't go back. That's despair. That's the enemy. The Lord says, I will cleanse you, I will sing over you, and I will bring you back. The Lord wants to do that for you. He died on the cross so that he could restore you. There's an insidious thought that lots of people have. And I've never heard this preached anywhere. I'm sure it has been. But I've only seen it in my heart and then in people that I've talked to, where we think, well, I had my one chance at salvation, and I I missed it. I don't see that in Scripture anywhere. I can't go back. Yes, you can. Get up. Get back and return. We say, well, if I go back, then that means that this, these last couple years have been a waste. Maybe. But don't try to save the waste and make it work. You know, you ever been in a, in a let's say, a, a company or you've been at school or you've been on an organization where there's so many layers of bad decisions that have been made and everyone's trying to make them all work and there's all sorts of weird bureaucracies that are tied together and When somebody comes in and just sweeps all that away and says everything from the last 10 years was a mistake, we're starting over, that can revolutionize what's going on because now you're not weighed down by all that stuff. It's not hanging over your head. It's a waste. Yeah, but God can restore a waste. Better to cut it off. Or maybe you're just cynical and you think, even if I could, it wouldn't work. I'm not the man I was anymore. I'm not the woman I was anymore. I'm not 16 anymore. I'm not 30 anymore. Whatever it is. You think, oh, back then I could have changed. It's too late to make a change. No, it's not. Well, even if I were to start reading my Bible and praying, even if I were to start attending church like I should and sharing the gospel and doing what I know to do, it wouldn't change anything. That's not true. Because, because God didn't change. God didn't say, I've made her into a great Christian. I'm going to abandon her now and watch her fall apart. God didn't do that. So what happened? We stopped doing what God had told us to do. We went to Egypt. So leave Egypt. Go back and do the former things. Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, when Jesus Christ himself was giving a message to the church in Ephesus. He runs down the list of all the great things they've done. But he says in verse 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned 
the love you had at first. You've left your first love. You've left the promised land, Abram. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. See that? Remember. Where'd you lose it? Repent, which means turn around and do the works you did at first. The Lord's telling the church in Ephesus, not you've got to come up with something new for a new age and a new generation. He says, no, go back to that, that good old-fashioned stuff you were doing. Repent. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. They had all kinds of activity. Ephesus had all kinds of success. Their doctrine was sound. But they were outside of God's promise. They were outside of God's favor because they had no love in their hearts for the Lord Jesus. Like Abram. He was seeing success. He was getting rich. He was making money. He maybe even convinced himself, this must have been God's method to bless me. If sin's involved, no, it wasn't, by the way. You can just answer that question forever. You can have all kinds of activity in your life. You can have success in your life, but you've got no peace. You've got no joy. You've got no power for ministry and no victory over sin. Those are things that God has promised you. Those are not things God said, I might do. You never know. Watch out. I might hit you with peace one day. The Lord promised them for all of his children. So if you don't have them, you need to look at your life. Go back to where you lost it. Go back to the altar you built between Bethel and I and worship there. And I guarantee when you do this, it's like a cold drink of water. To say, oh, I feel so much better. My soul feels refreshed. And you've got all that stuff behind you, but you're like, you know what? It's okay. My soul is at peace. You know, if you've got a terrible situation going on, but your relationships are sound, you can endure it, can't you? You know? If your relationship with your wife or your husband is solid, whatever you're going through, you're like, we're going to get through this. Or your family, whatever it is. We can get through this together. That's kind of what it's like with the Lord, except on a grander scale. My life has been a mess up till now, but now that I am right with my father, it's okay. We're going to get through this. And this is what Abram does. He goes back to where he was, and he starts over. He does what he was doing before. And from this point on, there will still be trouble in Abram's life, but we'll see that his relationship with the Lord will increase and there will be a much greater conversation between him and God. And he would go on to be known as the friend of God. And this is a very significant point in that story. But let's read verse 5. Verse 5, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So as I said, his wealth had dramatically increased in Egypt. And now there's no room for both of them. Abram was unable to occupy what God had promised him because he had to share it with someone else who had no business being there. God had promised him that spit of land, but nephew Lot was on that spit of land. Lot, we, as we've seen, was the son of Haran. This was Abram's brother, so Lot would be his nephew. And we know that Haran died before Abram left Ur of the Chaldeans. So he would have come with Abram to the city of Haran. And Abram left that when Terah died, you remember, in chapter 11. But the problem came... When Lot came with Abram to the promised land, what had God commanded Abram concerning his family? Leave your family. Leave them behind. 
And right now in this story, you can see that God knew what he was talking about. That Abram is going to have trouble because he did not obey what the Lord had told him to do. Lot was, for Abram, a symbol of doubt. Because Abram had no children, remember. Abram had no kids. And so Lot was his heir. If Abram had died today, Lot would have been his heir. And so he kept him around as a just-in-case. Later on, we're going to see that Eliezer, his servant, was his just-in-case. That everything's going to go to my servant, Eliezer. And then he's going to have a son with a slave girl, and the son's name is going to be Ishmael. That's Abram's other, just-in-case the promise doesn't come through. That's who Lot was. Lot was not himself evil. In fact, 2 Peter tells us that he was a righteous man. But in this story, Lot represents for Abram incomplete obedience. And therefore, Abram could only receive incomplete fulfillment of God's promise. If we're going to nurture little pockets of compromise in our lives, we will not see the fullness of God's promises. And there's no shortage with God in those situations. It's like if you have a budget, you've got all your money coming in, and you've got your bills, and you've got it all laid out, and you just don't know where the money is going. There's not enough coming in. But then we were to look at your expenses for the month, and you're going to Starbucks a couple times a day, and you've got a thousand subscriptions that auto-draft, and you forgot about all of them. And every now and then when you go out for a while, you're going to spend about $7,500 every time you, I just don't know where it went. Well, the problem is not that you don't have enough money. The problem is that you are wasting it on foolish things. It's similar to our relationship with the Lord, that God has given us promises, great and precious promises, Peter said. But if we're going to fill up our life with other stuff, there's no room for it. And God does not bust in and drive everything out of our life. He doesn't do that. He calls upon us to give it up because he knows that's real obedience. Let me give you a biblical example of somebody that tried to have it both ways. 1 Samuel 15, verses 13 through 15. Saul was commanded by the Lord to go and wipe out the Amalekites. And they were commanded to wipe them out as an act of judgment from the Lord. They had lived alongside Israel for a while, but the Lord had, had, had said their time of repentance is up, and they're going to be destroyed, utterly destroyed. He says, you're not even supposed to take spoil. I don't even want you taking extra flocks. I don't want you taking gold. I want it all destroyed. Well, Saul didn't do that. And in verse 13, it says, Samuel the prophet came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Man, so often we, we're going to claim that we've done what God said. When we know good and well we did not do everything God said. And Samuel said, oh, really? What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And if, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but Saul changes his story like five times here. But he said, well, they have brought them. They have brought them. Not me. They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Saul is trying to smooth talk the prophet Samuel. Worked on everybody else, did not work with Samuel. We get clever. 
We think we can sanctify our compromise. God said destroy all the Amalekites. That's a great idea. But you know what would be better, though? is if we keep a lot of this cattle and we'll sacrifice it and then we'll have a big feast and let's keep the king alive because he could be good for negotiating with other, other towns. And yeah, th this is a good plan. This must have been what God intended. And we say, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Saul lost his kingdom over this. This is when Samuel famously said, to obey is better than sacrifice. He says, Saul, do you think God gets hungry and that's why he wants your, your, your sheep sacrificed? You think God needs that sacrifice? God wants you to be obedient. When you try to stake your claim on God's promise, but there's already something there, there's going to be conflict and you should not blame God for that. I've done everything God said, but I'm not seeing his promises fulfilled. Well, I find that very unlikely. Well, it's not fair to blame the victim. You're not a victim. You're disobedient. It's time to do what the Lord has said. If you insist on filling your mind with sexual imagery, and then you're going to pray for the Lord to help you control your flesh, it's not going to happen. Well, God's not giving me the power. No, no you're being disobedient. If you're going to pray, Lord, please help me to have self-control over my flesh, and yet every single day you're eating gluttonous meals. Or you're engaging in inappropriate relationships. You've got a flirtation going at work with somebody. And every day you pray, Lord, keep me from stumbling. I don't want to commit adultery. But you still come back in and you still maintain that relationship. You, you're, you're like Saul. I've done everything God said. I prayed. Yeah, but you, you, you've got the lowing of the, of the cattle and the bleeding of the sheep around your life. Say, Lord, help me to not be stressed out. And you obsess over the news five or six times a day. It's not going to happen. Say, Lord, I want to be a faithful, godly person. But everything you do is, is centered around getting an extra nap in the day. I'm just so tired all the time. Or you're, everything is centered around being, having fun and getting your life the most exciting you can get it. You will not see God's promises in your life. And that's not God's fault. Don't try to say, well, God would give it, but he doesn't think that it's what I need right now. No, don't do that. Don't get all theological when you're walking in sin. Abram was not seeing the fulfillment of God's promise because he had brought Lot with him. And God had told him not to bring Lot with him. But he did it anyway. And you know, every time we try to come back to the Lord and get things right, when we come back to the altar, when we find out where we lost it and we go back there, I found in my life, if there's something that I have not corrected, that's the first thing that comes up. The Lord says, you shouldn't have brought Lot with you. Yeah, 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 I, I know, Lord, but what else? No, nothing else. This is the important thing that you need to hear right now. When you come to the Lord and he's given you a commandment in your life, you need to stop watching so much TV. Yeah, 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 I know, Lord, but what else you got? We're not moving forward until you fix this. But Lord, I, I need blessing in my life and I need peace and I need joy. And God's like, I'm trying to give it to you, but you're not doing what I'm telling you to do. It's very frustrating to have to help somebody, and you can see very clearly what needs to be done, and they just won't do it. You've got to heed those warnings. If you feel like every time you pray, the same thing comes up, God's trying to speak to you. If you feel like all Tyler ever preaches on is blank, well, I don't do that. So that's what's sticking out to you, which means God is trying to talk to you. So listen up. All he ever talks about is self-control. No, that's not true. That just means that whenever you hear it, you immediately have the Holy Spirit in your heart applying it towards self-control.
So you need to listen to what he's saying. Philippians 3.8 says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's the attitude to have. That we're not hanging on to extra stuff. We're not trying to keep compromise in our lives. We're not trying to keep little areas. I know it's not ideal, but it's okay. That's not how it works. The Lord sees that. You can't trick God, you know. God sees that that's the area of your heart that needs work. The Lord wants to give you his promises. He wants to give you the blessings he's promised. But you know, the Bible says that even your prayers can be hindered by sin in your life. A lot of folks that really, as I've said, want to lean in, well, this God's will be done. God's will is not being done in your life. Peter says, husbands, love and respect your wives that your prayers may not be hindered. There's a place where Paul is talking about communion. And he says, you guys coming in with no intention of repenting of your sin is why a lot of you guys are getting sick and dying. Your peace can be threatened by compromise in your life. That's why it says in Philippians 4, if you want to receive the peace of God, think about these things. If you just throw that in the Lord's face and think about other things and then wonder why you have no peace, the Lord has shown you what is good. Abram and Lot had conflict. And if you're having spiritual conflict in your heart, it's because you're trying to fit Jesus Christ and your own flesh in the same spot. And there's no room for both of them. So you've got to evaluate, is there something in your life that is incompatible with your life as a Christian. There was in Abram's life, so let's see what he did in verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go up to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. They'll come back in a few chapters, as you well know. Abram takes a very humble approach to this situation. He could have asserted his rights. I'm the promised one. I'm also older than you. So you need to clear off because God promised me this land. But he didn't do that, did he? He deferred to Lot. He humbled himself. Meanwhile, it says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. It's actually interesting. We've seen that phrase a couple times in the book of Genesis, and it's never been good. Eve lifted up her eyes and saw the fruit, that it was good. The sons of God lifted up their eyes and saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And now Lot lifts up his eyes, and he sees the Jordan Valley. He says, I'll take that. You're going to let me choose. I'm going to choose. He evaluated the situation based solely on what he saw. And he goes to pitch his tent near Sodom. And that will be troublesome for him. We're not going to discuss it anymore tonight, but that is not going to end well for Lot. So Abram took what was left. He took the land of Canaan, which I've sometimes seen this depicted as, you know, Lot got the green hills and Abram was in the, in the desert with little cactus growing up and stuff, flannel graph Christianity. The land of Canaan was still very fine land. It was still a good place to be, but 
you know, he didn't get the best. He was left with the, the lesser half. Because he was willing to trust God rather than his own eyes. Abraham is beginning to learn what we read in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, that we walk by faith, not by sight. I mean, how had Abram's sight worked for him up to this point? <laughs> not great. He says, I see a famine. We better go to Egypt. I see danger here. We better lie about our relationship. And he's now gained riches, but those riches are the very thing causing trouble right now. He was willing to let God work. He was willing to take the decision out of his hands and let the Lord work it out. When you are made aware of a compromise in your life, as we just discussed, you've got to be rid of it. And let me tell you now, if you have compromised in your life, to get rid of that compromise might mean taking a loss. Abram took a loss here. He lost the best portions of the promised land. And if we have devoted parts of our lives to compromise, it's very unlikely that you'll be able to get it fixed without some of it being destroyed first. It's like when a house burns and then you see them coming out to repair it and it seems like they do more damage than the fire did initially. It's like, well, we've got to knock this all out before we can begin to repair. There's got to be some more destruction. You're pulling out weeds and you're seeing all the earth get displaced when you pull them up by the roots. And this is what happens. The Bible doesn't lie to us. When we make mistakes, there can be long-term, even permanent consequences. Let's look at what Josiah did. Or, I'm sorry, not Josiah. Hezekiah. 2 Kings 18, verses 1 through 8. It says that Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places, which were mountaintops or hilltops where they would offer sacrifices to the Lord or to various gods. They were only supposed to worship in Jerusalem at the temple. He broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. That's where they would worship the fertility goddess in the groves. They would carve these poles similar to totem poles as we've seen in uh, Native American culture. He broke those. He destroyed them. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Do you remember the bronze serpent? When they were wandering in the wilderness and they committed fornication with one of, the, one of the tribes, the Lord sent a plague of fiery vipers. It's not a plague I, I care to, to handle. It's a plague of snakes. But people were dying from it and the Lord said, here's, how, here's my solution. Make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and everybody who looks at the serpent will be healed. There's a prefigure of Christ there that they were looking up to the one that was hanging on the tree. But that piece of bronze, which is a great cultural artifact and a huge part of their history, they had begun to worship it. They had begun to bow down and worship the bronze serpent. And so Hezekiah sees that and says, I don't think so. Destroy it. You can't destroy that. That's a part of our history. I don't care. It's causing us to sin. Get rid of it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. Even the good kings in the books of Kings and Chronicles never destroyed the high places. That was such a culturally ingrained thing that you go up to the top of the mountain or the hill and you offer a sacrifice that even Solomon didn't see a problem with it. 
And you can tell who were the greatest kings in the stories, Hezekiah, Josiah, and David, because they destroyed the high places. In fact, Josiah, who would come later, went out and burned the bones of the priests and defiled the high places so that no one could worship there anymore. He destroyed cultural centers. He destroyed landmarks, sacred history. You're thinking, aren't we stepping backwards? Aren't we losing something here? Yes, they were. But Hezekiah understood that sometimes you've got to take some steps back before you can start moving forward again. If you miss your exit, you've got to turn around and come back. Just try to find your way after you miss your exit. It's a disaster, isn't it? So if you've built your business practices around lies and deceit, we lie, we cheat, we fudge the numbers. If we can get away with it, we're going to get away with it. If you want to fix that, your business might suffer because you've now built a business with employees who are comfortable lying and cheating and stealing. So you might lose some people. And then they'll get angry at you because you've built your business that way. So you might lose, but you've got to do it. If you've got relationships in your life that are built around gossip, we can do this, where you've got nothing in common with this person except you both hate the same people and you love to get together and talk about how much you hate them whether that's somebody you know or somebody on TV. That's all you talk about. And you think, we're not going to do this anymore. It's not right for us to backbite and gossip and malign people. Well, now you've got nothing else to talk about. You might lose a friend. Your leisure time, let me just go ahead and say this, it will be changed. And it might be drastically reduced. Well, in order for me to start doing all these spiritual disciplines, I mean, that's cutting into my evenings. Okay. Why are we so obsessed with relaxing anyway? We never enjoy it. You finish up, all I did is watch TV today. I'll probably do it again tomorrow. There's no way to live your life like everybody else and then follow Jesus. It, it won't work. A lot of times we want that. We want to be just like our neighbors. We want to be just like our friends, just like the people we see online. We want to be like them and have Jesus too. You brought Lot into the promised land. There, there's a claim jumper on your, in the land that has been promised to you. You're not going to have it. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters because you'll serve the one and hate the other or you'll love the one and despise the other. Don't you find that to be true? You either start resenting the compromise and every time you do that thing you know you're not supposed to do, you just sit there kicking yourself because you hate it so much or you start resenting God for not permitting you to do it. It should be allowed, Lord. It shouldn't be a problem. Everybody else does it. You can't serve two masters. So if you want change, I want the promises. We all want the promises. Everybody wants the promised land. Everybody wants joy and peace and all that. But if you're not willing to do what God has told you, if you're not willing to change, then nothing's going to change. And you can sit there and sing and cry and shout all you want about how God will give me these promises. If you've got Lot living with you, there's no room for it. You have reduced the capacity of what God can do in your life. Which is why Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, is Jesus telling us to chop our arms and legs off? No, of course not. He's saying, get rid of the stuff that makes you sin. (laughs) 
It's really unfortunate that we haven't learned this after 2,000 years. And I think we, should, we have a special problem with this in our culture today because we're so affluent. We have so much. Even our poor people have way more than everybody else. And we fill up our lives with these things, and the thought of not having one of them just causes us to chafe. The thought of maybe social media isn't good for me. Well, I mean, I can't just delete all of it. Or, you, or the, the thought of maybe I shouldn't make that much money because I've shown that I'm susceptible to greed. The thought of making less money than possible, that's ridiculous. Jesus said if it causes you to sin, chop it off and throw it away. So what do you need to chop off? Abram and Lot needed to separate. Had Lot done anything wrong? Not really. It was Abram's problem. But Abram was being limited in what God could do in his life, and it was causing conflict. You must be willing to do whatever it takes to remove compromise from your life. And if you need motivation, let the promises motivate you. What has God promised you? Don't you want those things? God wants those things for you. The problem is when we think that we can get them without doing any of the obedience. The Lord has promised peace for us. Peace that passes all understanding. Don't you want that? He's promised us joy. Inexpressible joy. Don't you want that? He's promised victory over sin. Don't you want that? So you got to get that stuff out of there. You've got to get Lot out of here. You've got to get the claim jumper off your land saying, no, you can't be there because we've got a promise coming and it goes right there. Let those things motivate you. But so many times we, we get stuck with the fast food and the, not literal fast, with the fast food of life that's just so easy and it's so cheap and it goes down so quick and it tastes so good, but it ruins your appetite for anything else. That's what your life can be like. The Lord wants to give you better things, but it's much easier to do the wrong things. And Abram knew, all right, Lot's got to go. Go wherever you want, Lot. Abram kind of knew, I think. He's like, I dragged you into this mess, so you get first dibs. But now Abram has sent away his nephew. So let's see what happens in verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him. This is the first time God spoke to Abram since he got to the promised land. He said, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. I've said before, Abram didn't build cities, he built altars. Only things he left behind. So Abram got the land of Canaan, and Lot went to the Jordan Valley. And the Lord speaks to him and renews the promise. This is the grace of God on his life. He even increases the promise. Do you see that? Before he said, I will make you a great nation. Now he says, your descendants shall be like the dust of the earth. Later on, he's going to say they're like the stars of the sky. Imagine how Abram must have felt watching Lot leave. Part of his promised land given away. Left alone in a strange land full of Canaanites and Perizzites. But in that moment, as heartbreaking as that would have been, 
Abram has finally completed his obedience to the Lord's call. He has at this moment finally done what God told him to do back in Ur of Chaldee. He's in the land. He's away from his family. And he's calling upon the name of the Lord. So God tells him, look up, Abram. Look around. Look north. Look south. East and west. See the land in every direction. He said, that's all for you. Everywhere your foot falls. Now, Abram would not see these promises fulfilled in his life. In fact, Israel is still waiting to receive the fullness of that promise. And we know that it'll be when Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. But Abram is now learning to walk by faith and not by sight. And he comes to the oaks. And there's a, several different translations for this. ESV has the oaks of Mamre. Uh, the older translations had the terebinths of Mamre, and I liked how the, N the NIV just said, the great trees. They just sort of, <laughs> just, yeah, it's a big old tree. And that's where he settled. I always pictured as a kid Abraham living in the desert. It's not where he lived. <laughs> he lived in the promised land. So it would have been a nicer place to be. But the only place that Abram would own for the rest of his life would be the cave at Machpelah, where he and his wife and his children would be buried. And we'll get to that another time. He builds another altar representing that fresh commitment to follow God, free of distractions, free of compromise. It cost him a lot. It cost him time. He's years older now. It cost him probably some trust between him and his wife after what went down in Egypt. It lost him not only the relationship, but with Lot, but it lost him half the promised land. But he's finally where he needs to be. His relationship with God is right. And he goes on, able to live in full faith that he would receive what was promised. Hosea chapter 10, verse 12, the prophet said, Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Abram had a major failure in Egypt. He returned to the Lord. And in that act of obedience, in that act of, repent, of repentance, he quickly saw that it wasn't just the, the Egypt thing that was wrong. That was a bad mistake, but there was more. There was deeper problems. That his old life was conflicting with the promises of God. So he did what was necessary to remove the compromise. He took a loss so that God could bless him. He broke up the fallow ground. What's fallow ground? It's ground that was plowed and did produce fruit, but has been allowed to lie dormant. Hasn't been plowed, hasn't been fertilized, hasn't been tended. The weeds grow. Maybe you get a little sprout here and there of something worth saving, but it's fallow. And the Lord told the children of Israel through Hosea, break up that fallow ground, sow righteousness, and you'll reap steadfast love. That's the key to a harvest. If you want to have a harvest of God's promises and blessing in your life, you can't do it. You know, farmers don't get out there and like crack open every individual seed and like make it grow. They can just prepare the ground for God to do what he's going to do. That's what we're calling ourselves to do today. Unplowed ground will never lead to a harvest because even if it rains and the conditions are perfect, at best you're just going to get a few little shrubs. You're not going to get a field that you can harvest. I'm saying all this because when we start talking about these things, we, we start to get afraid. Well, doesn't this put all of it in my hands? No, it doesn't. I love the classic analogy that 
if two farmers knew that rain was coming, God was going to send rain, and one of them prepared the ground to receive the rain, which one of them actually had the faith? It's not a gospel of works. It's obedience. It's, I trust that God meant what he said, so I'm going to do what he instructed me. You don't get to say, I believe every promise of God and ignore every commandment of God. It doesn't work. God is a person. He's not a machine. God doesn't go, well, I'm now obligated to give you promises. God goes, I don't think so. It wouldn't even be good for you for me to give you these things yet. Our God is gracious and merciful. He honors obedience. He restores what is lost. And he wants to do the same thing in your life. In Christ, as we've said, you're promised peace and assurance and power. So why would you let something lesser than that jump the claim that you have on those promises? Now we say things, I would do anything to have peace in my heart. Well, would you? What are you doing now that is corrupting the peace in your life? Are you nurturing unforgiveness in your heart? The Lord has told you to forgive those who have sinned against you. If you're nurturing unforgiveness, you're not going to have peace. I'll do anything. Well, are you not taking care of the body that God gave you? You're not resting like the Lord commanded on the Sabbath day, and so you're becoming so strung out that you can't even think straight anymore? Are you obsessing over bad news, as Philippians 4 instructs us not to do? I'd do anything. Well, would you stop doing those things? Will you send Lot away? You need to be willing to do that. Because Jesus said in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom. Don't just want the kingdom and then live however you want. Seek first the kingdom. Put God's kingdom first. Now, we're all more or less in the middle of our lives right now. We're not starting brand new. We've got baggage We've got scars. We've got stuff. We are in situations. God can work with that. Aren't you glad God can work with that? Aren't you glad God could work with Abram even after he brought Lot into the promised land disobediently? God can work with that. You might have scars. Okay. God can work with that. You might have baggage that you've got to carry. And it might be permanent, but God can handle that. The Lord can make the desert bloom. The Lord can make this fallen earth be the lamp of his glory. So what's your little life to that? God is able to restore what is broken when we come to him in humility and willingness to have him deliver us, willingness to get rid of sin. God showed Abram grace. He showed him mercy. And you and I live under the grace of Jesus Christ. If Abram had grace, we've got mega grace. When you get your act together, the Lord will not hesitate to turn things around for you. He didn't wait one minute after Lot left before he said, hey, Abram, let's get back to where we were. Where'd you lose it? Go back to there. Do what you got to do. And the Lord is ready in that moment to start moving forward. It's unfortunate that often we are uncomfortable talking so much about God's blessings and his promises. But I think that's because we don't know God. We don't know our God who delights to bless his children. He's given us, as Peter said, those great and precious promises. And we go, yeah, in heaven. No, 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 not just in heaven. Now. The Lord has given you the first fruit of the Spirit now. The Lord desires to give you joy and peace now. 
Because Psalm 103, 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. God made all those promises knowing what you were. God didn't get surprised. God didn't write up the, the promises and then deliver them and take a look at you and go, Oh man, I shouldn't have promised them that. They'll never. No, God knew. We've got to get ourselves out of this self-reliant idea, this semi-deistic idea that God does not intervene, that life is the way it's going to be, and we shouldn't look for God to step in and change things. That is not what my Bible teaches. Your Bible is a big, long list of God intervening. Isaiah 64 says that God is unique from the other gods because he answers his people when they call. And maybe we're reacting to some false prosperity teachers that tell you you can, you can pray up a Cadillac if you want, which is so obviously ridiculous. But we also can't let false teachers take away what the Bible does say, which is that the Lord has promised us an abundant life in Christ if we will seek first his kingdom. So it's time for you to take a look. Where are those compromises in your life? Where have you let Lot Live. Where, where are the Sooners in your life? Where have, have there been those that have jumped the claim? You have a claim to that, but something else is sitting there. you got to get rid of it. And that might cost you something, but that's okay. I exhort you to read through your Bible like Abram did. Like Abram walked through the land. The Lord said, walk, and everywhere your foot touches the ground, I'm going to give that to you. Read your Bible like that. Read through what the Word says. Do good Bible study, but find out what the Lord has promised you and say, that, the Lord has given me that in Christ Jesus. And then you say, am I seeing this in my life? Okay, let's start praying about it. Maybe the Lord will say, I do want to give you that. But you know what? You've got this over here. Let's deal with that. The sanctifying process, that's how it works. That's our life as Christians. And the Lord wants to do it today. I'm going to close with one of my favorite hymns by a guy named William Merrill. And he says this, the first verse says, Rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. I love that second line. Have done with lesser things. Not sinful things, that should be obvious. Lesser things. Inferior things. Things that are going to limit what God can do in your life. We're not talking about salvation so much as we're talking about the life that God wants to give you by the power of His Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. Have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King. And in order to do that, sometimes you've got to take a loss. By the time it's all over, when you commit to this and you say, all right, Lord, everything's, everything must go. <laughs> my right hand's getting chopped off. My right eye's being plucked out. We're going for it. Your life may look very differently from how it does right now, but you will be right with God, and there will be nothing left to hinder the promises of God in your life. And as we were saying on Sunday night, we live in in a time where the people are more depressed, more anxious, more fearful than, than since we've been tracking it. Even among groups that normally don't track high with those things. So we look at that and we say, is that what God has promised? Absolutely not. 
Bible tells us, do not be afraid. The Bible says, do not be anxious. The Bible says the Lord has given us inexpressible joy and peace that surpasses all understanding, which says to me, there is somewhere in our promised land where we've let somebody else set up shop. And it's time for us to start taking a hard look at our lives and saying, we can't have it both ways.